Good morning, everyone. It's a beautiful morning this morning, wasn't it? So, um, before I start, I, I have a confession to make. Um, last summer, you remember, my eyes started giving me some problems, and um, as the doctor said, about six month, uh, six weeks later, my vision came back in. And I was so excited, I, I was able to read my devotion that morning with both my eyes open, which is, was a unique experience for me for the last six weeks. And I, uh, Pastor Zach wasn't here, and I had the opportunity to say, I'm healed. And that was folly. Because God in his grace has chosen to um, allow my vision problems to uh, continue. And, um, and, and here's the biggest folly. I was uh, embarrassed to say really anything again about it until today. So um, many of you, especially in the front row, will see me looking down and probably blinking, closing an eye. Um, it's not that I am uh, trying to be funny or anything. It's the only way I could see one of my manuscript. So I wanted to get that out in the clear and just uh, confess my folly this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 6, and the, 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 the uh, title of my sermon is, is What the Feeding of the 5,000 Teaches Us About Faith in Trials. So as many of you know, I am an engineer by profession. I started out my career as a controls engineer. That means I programmed very special computers to control pieces of equipment, and um, it causes the machine to cycle and how it works. Um, when robots came into the manufacturing environment, I spent a lot of time integrating robots with existing pieces of equipment and how to do that in a safe and efficient manner. I learned to think about how things work together, how the robot would work with the piece of equipment, what had to happen, how to best cycle it, how to keep it from self-destructing and how to keep the people that were working around it safe. The most important thing that I learned was to be aware of what's going on during each part of the cycle. What that machine or robot was doing, and how it was interacting with that piece of equipment. So I can tell you from personal experience, it is a bad thing. When a robot capable of picking up a 200-pound aluminum casting pushes it through a door that's closed that should have been open. It's a bad thing. So I spent much time thinking about the correct sequence of events or the chronology of how things, or how things are supposed to happen in order. And um, to tell you the truth, I still have dreams 25 years later about a robot going haywire and walking into a plant and seeing everything destroyed because I goofed something up. That thinking is still influential in my life, at work and at home, especially when our kids were growing up and trying to get to the bottom of certain events within the household, as many of you parents can understand. So this idea of sequence, of understanding the big picture, comes, it shapes my thinking biblically in terms of context. Good exegesis is driven by context what the passage is telling us. Another way it works is by understanding the broader context of history and of the culture. 
Now, I bring this up this morning because as we look at John 6 today in the feeding of the 5,000, the context of John's gospel and the context provided by the synoptics help us to fully understand the narrative and what Jesus is teaching his disciples and by extension, believers today. The outline is very simple. Three points. Uh, The first will be some introductory comments uh, in some context of of the feeding of the 5,000. The second point will be what the narrative tells us about the sign itself and what John uh, points out for us. And the last thing is the testing of Philip's faith. So before we start, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are the gracious God. You are our creator, our savior. The fulfillment of all the hopes and promises that we have is in Christ. And you make our life worth living. We praise you and thank you for the Holy Spirit and the work that he does in every believer to bring to mind, to bring to bear the things that you've taught, to empower us to live the life that Christ has called us to live, that you make the teaching and the preaching of the word powerful as you bring into remembrance the things that we've individually read and done and learned. So this morning, my prayer simply is, Father, that your spirit would move amongst us to do its work in the hearers and in the speaker that Christ would be magnified and glorified, that our faith would increase, that we would understand why you test our faith. And would it be for your glory, your honor, and our good. And I ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like to start out with making some initial comments and observations about John's gospel. So if you look at the chronology of the New Testament, John is the last gospel writer. He's the last writer of the, Old, of the New Testament. And he writes these letters, and he writes his gospel at the end of his life. He is an old man. He's 80, maybe even 90 when he writes some of these things. So... He has seen and experienced many things. He's been moved by the Holy Spirit to write to the church at the end of his life to fulfill and to give the church another gospel. Most scholars agree that Mark was written the first gospel in the mid to late 50s. That was followed by Matthew in the late 50s or early 60s. And then Luke finished up. And he wrote probably in the early to mid 60s, certainly before the burning of Rome in 65 A.D., There's little doubt in my mind that John read all of these Gospels. And he assumed that his readers would also know the content of them. John was also likely to have been present when Dr. Luke interviewed Mary about Jesus' birth and his birth announcement and the interaction with Elizabeth and John. It's likely that John wrote his gospel in the early to mid-80s, roughly 30 years after Mark and 20 years after Luke, if you're going to bookend those. I just want to say this. It's really been critical to my thinking. Time changes our perspective on things, doesn't it? 
You ask anybody here that's over 60 years old and the things that they have seen and the things that they have experienced both in our culture and in their personal lives and they will have a unique perspective on the events that shape their lives and on the events that have shaped our culture. If you look at John, John had lost his brother James, the first martyr. He knew of uh, the persecution of Nero in Rome, including the burning of the city in 65 AD that Nero blamed on Christians. Later, Nero would put to death Peter and Paul, and that had to grieve his heart. The destruction of Jerusalem followed in AD 70, and that had to break his heart. He personally experienced the persecution of Emperor Domitian, And tradition says, for what tradition says, that Domitian actually tried to boil John in oil. And he came out of it unscathed. He had seen the rise of the false doctrine of Gnosticism. He cared for uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and he ministered to Jews in Jerusalem prior to AD 70. He taught in the church there, and then he moved to Ephesus after the diaspora. And he watched the gospel go into all the known world. That's the context that framed John's perspective. What he saw, Jesus building his church, what he experienced, the persecutions, the hardships. And he takes these things and he incorporates them into his gospel. After all these events, John wanted to tell a story that was different from the other three Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not that there was anything wrong with them, and I'm not saying that this morning, and John wouldn't say that. But he felt the working of the Spirit within him, the inspiration to move in a different way, to write a different thing about Jesus. Biblical scholars tell us that 90% of John is new material. 90%. That's an A today in in schools. And anyone who has read all four Gospels can attest to John's unique perspective. 90% new material framed by 60 years, 60 years of walking with Jesus daily. John would write a Gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was different. Profoundly simple in vocabulary. This is one of the things that just blew my mind. John is going to write this gospel using just 600 Greek words. Now that may seem like a lot, but most of you parents know that your three-year-old knows 1,500 words. And they use them all the time, don't they? I believe it's a testimony to the inspiration of the gospel of John that the fact that something that is so simply written, 600 words, is so profoundly deep so profoundly deep, so profoundly inspirational. John has often been explained as two books within a book, chapters 1 through 11 called the Book of Signs, in which Jesus' glory is revealed, followed by the Book of Glory in chapters 13 through 20, in which Jesus receives glory from the Father. Chapter 12 serves as a transition and you all know chapter 21, if you've read the Gospel of John, kind of is, provides some closing comments and some context about John's life. 
The bookends of John's gospel are this. If you remember what bookends are, they keep the book on the shelf upright. The prologue is in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And it outlines themes that would be repeated through the gospel. The key verses, in my opinion, are verses 1 and 2, and then verse 14. Verses 1 and 2 say this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The literal word is tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The other bookend is at the end, in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. It's John's purpose in writing. And these verses say, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have eternal life in his name. I found the bookends very helpful in understanding and interpreting John's gospel. John wrote this gospel to show us Jesus' glory. and for the express purpose that all who would read this might come to faith, might believe in the gospel, might believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior of mankind, God the Son, God incarnate, and that that true belief would lead to eternal life. So, laying that foundation, if you would turn to John 6. Um, Another aside, John 6 is very interesting because in the... uh, in the scheme of what's happened in the book of signs up to this point, uh, this is the only narrative, the only chapter in which Jesus is focusing part of the time on his disciples. And he does that in two specific uh, narratives or stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on water. To make the point, the focus of each chapter in the book of signs can be summarized this way. John 1, the prologue, John the Baptist and the calling of some of his disciples. John chapter 2, the uh, wedding in Cana and the first Passover. John 3, Nicodemus and the great um, verses that came out of that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman in the village of Sychar. John 5, the lame man healed by the pool of Bethsaida. John 7 and 8, Jesus is uh, teaching at the Feast of Tabernacles. And we also have the woman that was caught in adultery. John chapter 9, healing of the man born blind and the following interaction with the Pharisees. John chapter 10, the good shepherd. And John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, I've often wondered, how did the other three gospel writers miss the raising of Lazarus? I've never been able to figure that out. So let's read John 6, verses 1 through 15. And it says this, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing. 
Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy food or bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he knew himself what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, What is, um, there is a boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the barley, five barley loaves, left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming into the world. The feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. The synoptics tell essentially the same story. In the the big picture, in the broad context of John's gospel, one has to ask the question, or I ask the question, why does he include this story? The synoptics have it covered. They've done a good job. Why repeat a narrative, a story that is so fully covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke? The simple answer is, is that the sign fulfills the purpose of John's gospel, the purpose to display Jesus' glory as God in, you could, in John, uh, as stated in John 1.14, and to stir belief, saving faith in the reader, John 20.31. Some context from the gospel, this miracle happens about halfway through Jesus' three-year ministry. Jesus is well-known and is constantly sought after. He's mobbed when he goes into villages and towns. The teachers, uh, the, he's teaching the crowds, and the crowds follow him because of his teaching and his healing ministry. The disciples have been with him for about a year and a half. They've walked with him, they've talked with him, they've seen the things that he's done, they've heard his teaching, he's seen, they've seen Jesus heal a multitude of diseases, maladies, sicknesses, and they've seen Jesus cast out demons. And they themselves have recently returned from being sent out by Jesus to proclaim the gospel in all of Galilee. And you'll see that in Matthew 10 a little later. Matthew and Mark tell us two things that cause Jesus to want to get away. And he wants to get away with his disciples. The first is they had just returned from their mission into Galilee to prepare for Jesus' coming into their towns. And that he has heard that John the Baptist, his cousin, his forerunner, has been beheaded by Herod. Jesus wanted some alone time. He wanted to pray. He wanted to be with his disciples. So they left Capernaum, 
which is on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And by boat, they crossed to the northeast side, to a desolate place. And there's a picture here, that northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they went and they landed near Bethsaida, which is the home of Philip. Now the crowds followed, mostly on foot, and they managed to arrive before Jesus gets there by boat. I want to say that they were desperate. They were desperate to be with Jesus because of his healing ministry. And you see that in verse 2. And desperate enough to walk or run approximately the 18 miles from Capernaum to where Jesus landed while the disciples and Jesus took a boat and traveled six miles. They were desperate. Matthew tells us that when Jesus came to shore, the crowd gathered and he began to heal the sick. Mark says he taught, likely did both. And at the end of the day, the disciples are starting to get a little antsy. There's a lot of people around. And they were hungry. They were getting hungry. Many were so desperate that they left Capernaum in the surrounding areas with no food at all. Some had food, but had already eaten it. And they were hungry. And this is a situation that John and Mark and Luke and Matthew write about. This situation of 5,000 men, and we know that's probably 20,000 people, hungry after listening to Jesus. John tells us an old man, recalling the, uh, this event years later, writes this in verses 5 and 6. Lifting up his eyes, then, and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that the people may eat? Philip was one of the first disciples to be called by Jesus. And again, he had seen many, may I say, glorious things. And had heard Jesus' glorious words. He had believed Jesus was Messiah and likely performed miracles under Jesus' authority on his trip to, uh, to Galilee that he just is returning from. You know the response to Jesus' request. 200 days of wages wouldn't be enough for them to get a little. 5,000 men plus women and children. The contrast of the 200, day, 200 days of wages versus the 5,000 people. That's what they saw. Andrew helps out by bringing a little boy's lunch to Jesus. And you know what Jesus does? It's miraculous. He takes a boy's lunch of five small barley cakes or barley loaves and two fish. He prays, and then he breaks them. And he breaks the bread and the fish, and he gives the pieces to the disciples. And miraculously, as the disciples pass out the food, something starts to happen. Somehow, some way, whether they pass the broken pieces out in baskets and they pass the baskets through the crowd, or as they pass the food through the crowd, it never ran out. It never ran out. They had so little amongst just 12 men. And then they go to the crowds that are seated in 50s and in 100s. And they start handing out what they have, and it doesn't diminish. 
I wonder how long it took those guys to realize what was going on. That maybe they got more back than what they passed out as each time the basket was fed. And there's enough to feed 20,000 people. Can you imagine the joy that they must have felt being again a part of Jesus' ministry and a part of the miracle that's going on? What about relief? I imagine when those people saw five small loaves and two small pieces of fish, a lot of people were saying, we're going to go hungry. And yet, as the miracle progressed, the relief on the apostles, the disciples' faces must have been great. And notice what Jesus does afterward in verses 12 and 13. I'm behind. No, I'm not behind. Okay, I'm there. So uh, look at what Jesus does afterwards in verses 12 and 13. He has uh, what I would call uh, an after-action report or a debriefing. Jesus sends the disciples out to pick up scraps. And I really don't think the exercise was about picking up the leftovers. How many baskets were full, filled How many disciples were there? Okay. Do you get the picture? Twelve disciples, each one with a basket, going through the crowds of 5,000, picking up the food and putting it in the basket, knowing what Jesus was brought. Five small barley cakes, two fish. Would that increase your faith? It's, it's amazing. Each gospel writer writes this fact. It's so important that this simple act of going out and collecting those scraps was, in effect, had the effect of building up the, um, the, the disciples' faith. There are two points that John wants us to see, and I want to un- just get right out there right now. That is the purpose for John putting this parable, this narrative into his gospel. It fully displays Jesus' glory as the creator God. John 1 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 3 says, through him all things came into being that has come into being. Nothing has come into being that he didn't make. And we see that on full display, his glory as he multiplied the fish and the breads. And Jesus taught the disciples to believe, to trust, and to have faith when they didn't understand what was going on. That when he asked them to do the seemingly impossible. So, two points. But I believe there is more that John wants us to think about before we walk away from this narrative. Remember, he's, it's 60 years later, perhaps, after this was done. And he's remembering details. And he's remembering the lesson. And as the Holy Spirit inspires him to write down, he writes these details about Philip in his testing of faith in John 6, 6. And he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. So first, John says Jesus wanted to test Philip. Why? Why would he test one of his disciples? And by extension, why does he test us today? 
Well, as I thought about that question, I said probably the first thing we ought to talk about is to discuss what God's testing is not. And God does not tempt us to sin. James makes this very clear in James 1, 13 and 14. And that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own sinful desires. So this morning, if you are being tested to sin, know this, that it's not God testing you. That it's your own fleshly desires. The reality is, is that we fight this battle every day, don't we? The battle of our flesh and the battle of our sin. But praise be to God that the working of the gospel in our lives and in the, with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we can say no to those kind of temptations. But God does test our faith, doesn't he? And he tested the faith of the servants and his saints long before Philip. And the best example that I could think of was Abraham. In the New Testament, Abraham is the model of faithfulness. He's, he's, uh, his example is used by Paul and by Peter. And as believers in Jesus, the scripture tells us that we are also his children, Abraham's children. And this morning we read from Hebrews 11 all about him. And here's what we know. And here's what the writer of Hebrews tells us about Abraham. First, in verse 8, Abraham obeyed a call to leave his hometown. He was going to a place where he'd never been before, to a land that he'd never seen, and God said, that land will be yours. And so he goes, he leaves, he goes, he finds the land. God says, this is the place. And yet, what does he set on it? Tents. And he lives in tents. And his descendants would live in tents, and they wouldn't dwell in the land for 400 years. And they come back and they have it. But Abraham never saw it. Second, we see in Abraham's faith in the birth of Isaac. God promises um, a son through Sarah. Now, um, I've started to get a little older, and I find that my ability to do things has decreased, and I'm just a little over 60. I can't imagine a man at 80 being told that he would have a son with his wife, who's roughly his age, who's been barren for all of these years. And does it happen right away? It doesn't, does it? How many years does he wait? 20 years. The scriptures tell us that Abraham believed, and they waited. They waited for 20 years. And I think the most amazing thing is after waiting for 20 years for Isaac to be born, one day God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac to him. Take him up on an altar and sacrifice him. And you know the story there, too. He took Isaac up, he bound him, put him on the altar, and was ready to plunge the knife when God told him to stop. Hebrews 11 tells us that God 
that Abraham believed that God could have raised Isaac from the dead if he were to offer him as a sacrifice. So why did God test Abraham? Why does he test us? Well, I think the answer has to be to grow and mature our faith. Did God know that Abraham would go through with it? Did God know? Yes, he did, didn't he? Did Abraham know? I, I, I will say that he did not know until he raised that knife above his head. And just as he said, I'm going to plunge this down, he believed that God, if you re- look at the way Hebrews 11 is written, he believed as he was getting ready to sacrifice his son that God would raise him from the dead if he were to do it. He believed that God was able. And do you see, the testing is for our growth and for our benefit. That act of obedience, that act of faith, showed Abraham just how much he believed and displayed his faith in the God who promised him that this son would be the heir of promise. So in the greater context of things, uh, I'd like to go to uh, Matthew 10, as, as, as we mentioned. So how does this fit in for Philip? Well, Philip has just come back from a missions journey where he and the other disciples had several things happen. So if you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, And he called his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So they were given power, the same power that Jesus had. And they went into Galilee, and they proclaimed the kingdom of heaven is at hand, likely followed by repent and believe, the teacher's coming, the one is coming. And he healed their sick, and they cast out demons, and they proclaimed that gospel. That kind of experience is faith building, isn't it? And I'm sure their faith was built. And yet, when Philip comes back, they get away, and he doesn't have the faith to believe that Jesus can feed 5,000 people with what they have. So to put it simply, faith is like a muscle that needs to be exercised. I want to use this illustration of physical growth. A human baby comes into the world, and we've had a lot of them lately, that baby cannot hold, it, hold its head up. Its muscles are all there, but they're weak because they haven't been exercised. It hasn't been worked in the womb. That's why we hold the head of newborns. And quite frankly, every time I get handed one, I'm afraid I'm going to break it. And, we, that's, and then the muscles in the head grow. And isn't it neat to see, um, you know, so I've watched my grandchildren now, watch their being able to hold and move their heads. And then they get to the place where they can, uh, their torso gets strong enough and you lay them on the floor and they start rolling all over the place most of the time. And then their arms get strong and they, they start lifting themselves up and you know what's happening next, don't you? They're starting to crawl. And then life gets very interesting in the household as you try to keep them from falling downstairs. And then from the crawling, it's tottering. Our grandson right now just walked through this stage. 
And I loved watching him walk with his arms way out like a tightrope walker, trying to keep his balance and totter. And then we grow up, and we get to our teens, and we start running. We've learned to walk, and we start running. We start exercising. The muscles are being built. And some of us get to look like this guy. (laughs) Because they've exercised their muscles. That's not me, by the way. Not me at any time. So how does this apply to Philip? Well, you know, Philip went and saw all those things, and he, he, he came, comes back, and he's weak. He still needs help with his faith because his faith has not been exercised yet, exercised completely and fully. So as we look at Philip's test, I believe John is telling us that Philip had small faith despite his past successes. He looked at the crowd instead of at Jesus. He made statements of circumstances. 200 denarii won't feed them. Where will we find bread for them all? Instead, he should have asked questions of faith. Jesus, we have a boy with five barley loaves and two fish. Can you use those? Is it probable that John learned from this experience and learned throughout life that when being tested, that he needed to look to Christ and look to Jesus and ask questions of faith? rather than making statements from circumstances. Today, I want to encourage you, and this is my admonition, that we need to be constantly and persistently asking ourselves questions of faith when we're being tested, because Jesus will test us. It's all part of the package deal of being his disciples. And he does it so that our faith and our dependence on him will grow. He wants us to exercise our faith muscles. Now, there's something else that uh, John t- tells us in this, um, and it's at the end of verse 6, where it says this, for he, he himself, Jesus himself, knew what he would do. How encouraging is that, that Jesus, the lover of our souls, always has a plan. And the great thing is, is I make a lot of plans, and oftentimes I have them like this. This is plan A, this is plan B, and this is plan C. I have plan B in case plan A doesn't work out, and I have plan C in case plan B doesn't work out. Does Jesus ever have to make a plan B? He's sovereign. That's right. He's sovereign over our universe, and he's over our trials. And most importantly, he promises to be with us when we are tested. Brothers and sisters, this is the maturing process. This is how Jesus does this. He tests our faith. And in John 6, we see two examples. We see... Jesus asking Philip and the disciples to do what they were seeming, thought was seemingly impossible. And then he sends them out onto a boat into a storm where the just life hits them broadside. And that's a, it's another sermon that I, I'll be preaching in the future. Now, the real reality is, is that in this process, um, we're going to fail. Okay, I hate to disappoint you, but unless you're... a really good in your walk, you're going to fail the first time. You're going to fail when your faith is tested. But I don't want you to spare because that's all part of the process. Toddlers, when they fall down, they get back up and they start walking. Runners fall down, they get back up and they keep running. Guys like this drop the barbells, but they pick it up and they keep going. 
Philip didn't get voted off the, off the disciples' team, did he? When he failed about the 5,000. Peter didn't get released after his failure the night of Jesus' arrest, did he? Thomas wasn't asked to leave for his lack of faith after, after Jesus' first appearance in the upper room, did he? Jesus didn't ask him to leave. He said, repent and believe. Jesus is the patient teacher. Patient teacher. And he called his disciples and he calls us to repent of doubt, to trust, and to believe. Brothers and sisters, Jesus exercises our faith because without faith it is impossible to please God. That's what the author of Hebrews tells us. Peter understood this when he wrote, The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. Our faith is precious. precious. And when we are faithful, Jesus is glorified. Now, there's some practical things that are in John chapter 6 in the feeding of the 5,000 and some things that I've learned from experience that I'd like to pass on when we are being tested. Remember, you're being trained. Testing is faith exercises. Remember, God has a plan. And there's, he doesn't need a plan B. Ask questions of faith instead of making statements of circumstance. Gather what resources you have at hand, and you may get, be able to get help. The greatest resource that we have is this word right here in the Holy Spirit that makes it alive to us, isn't it? I have been comforted by two pieces of scripture from the Psalms because I find myself in trouble much. Psalm 46.1 says this, God is, a, is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. How many of you are in trouble or fall into trouble? And this is a wonderful promises from Psalm 91, verses 15 and 16, where God says, Because he holds fast to me in love, I will protect him. I will deliver him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer. I will be with him in trouble. There's great promises and great things that that help us. And although I didn't touch on it, there is a real reality to to look back on your past blessings and your past successes and let them be encouragement and reminders of how God has been faithful in the past to you. In closing, I want to say some here may not believe in Jesus or committed their life to him. I would say to you, you have no faith to grow. You are like one of the 20,000 who ate the fish and the bread, looking for the blessing instead of the blessor. Looking to have your fill rather than knowing Jesus. You've seen and followed, you've seen the miracles, and perhaps you've even seen glory. But if you're honest, you're here just for the blessing, blessing that perishes. John would later say in John 6 verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Those same people wanted to make Jesus king after he fed them. 
Yet the next day, after eating their fill and hearing Jesus require something of them, belief and commitment to follow, they leave him and never come back again. 20,000 people. Jesus calls you to hear and believe his word if you don't know him. This is the food that endures to eternal life. It says that God is holy. He's the creator who has created you and by his very nature must destroy sin and disobedience. All men have disobeyed God's perfect ways. They've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the fact is we'll never be able to repay our sin debt. And that's where Jesus comes in, the Son of God, the one that we are to believe in, the one whose glory has been displayed in the Gospel of John. He comes into human history, born of a virgin, raised as a Jew, lived a perfect life that we could not live, displayed his deity in performance of miracles and in the authority of his teaching, and then, by the ordained plan of God, was crucified, his death paying the sin debt that we could never pay. And he says to repent and believe. Today, this is available to you. If you have any questions, please talk to one of the elders or someone who brought you here. We can, we can answer your questions about who Jesus is. So I thought about this. I'm going to go off script, I promise. I, I realize it's getting a little late, and a wise teacher once told me people can't listen to what their fannies can't endure. So um, I want to talk about testing real quick. As an elder, as, as your elder, I know that there are many here being tested today. Many. Sorrowful, sorrowful testing. Hard testing. Things that make us as elders weepy as we pray for you. And I want to say to you, I would say to you, look to Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 11 says, Come to me, all you who are heavy and weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. A lot of the burden is yours to bear, but some of that burden could be ours to help you bear. Ours as the body of Christ here at Grace Chapel. I would want to encourage you to let us know how we can help because I think we want to. And I would also say this, Psalm 63, verse, uh, one of my favorite verses that I've memorized. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. If you're being severely tested today by sorrowful, hard things, cling, cling, cling to Christ. He'll never let you down. His right hand upholds you. I also have to admit that there's uh, the teaching in the past several weeks on studying submissiveness has uh, convicted me. I have had to be careful about referring to some of our political leaders in derogatory ways and catch my, my mouth before what's in my mind comes out and I've been, trying to, I've been training my mind to stop thinking that way. As a result of hearing the word preached about Stunning submissiveness in honor to our leaders. I confess to you that I've had to think about my boss differently 
and show him the honor that he is deserving. I would suspect that there are many of you that are having the same problems. And hearing the word proclaimed and taught to us as clearly as it was, this will be a testing of our faith. And as we struggle with those things, as we wrestle with the realities of what Christ has called us to be, I would say Jesus' glory is, is displayed when you are stunningly submissive, when you can honor those that we reject their thinking, their morality, their very lives, and the very things that they say. And yet, when we can honor them, when we can submit to the authority that they may have over us, Jesus' glory is put on display for the world to see. And I would encourage you, don't fail the test. Don't fail the test. So why does Jesus, what can we learn about trials from John chapter 6? They display God's glory. They display Jesus' glory, full on display. And that trials grow and increase our faith, our trust, and our dependence on our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Christ, who even in the midst of our testing is the patient teacher. We thank you that we have the word and we have the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables us to stand up under these trials. And Father, we rejoice that one day all the sorrows of our trials, all the sorrows of this life will in no way diminish the abundance of glory that will be ours in Christ Jesus because of those trials. Would you be honored and glorified by what we do? Would our faith increase? Would your glory be made known in the world that we walk in this week? And I ask this in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.